and I'm beginning at verse 5. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he, Jesus, said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. They questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. For these things must take place first. But the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom, which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city must leave. Those who are in the country must not enter the city. Because these are days of vengeance. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be many signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves 
men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it, and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that day will not come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, as our title suggests, Judgment Near and Far, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to his disciples, I believe, in this passage about two different matters. Matthew chapter 24 takes this subject up as well. So you can, on your own time, maybe do a comparison study between this chapter and Matthew 24. I want to suggest to you that um, there, there are two events going on here that Jesus is trying to answer for his disciples. And those two events are, are this, that you'll remember that the context of this discussion was at the temple. And uh, the way Matthew describes is, it is, is they're, they're looking at the buildings in awe. And Jesus has these shocking words uh, that Luke records here also in verse 5 and 6, uh, saying that the days will come and there will not be left one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And what Jesus is describing there is the destruction of the temple. They're, remember, they're in the temple They've just been watching wealthy people put a lot of money in the in the coffer. And then there was that one poor woman with her, her two mites and she put everything she had to live on in that. And you remember that that was the context. And then so they're at the temple and the disciples are admiring the beauty of the temple and how wonderful it is and the building and the surroundings and all. And Jesus says there's going to be a destruction of this temple. Now, the way Matthew records it is Luke makes it seem kind of like. This discussion took place um, right here at the temple. Matthew seems to suggest that they actually left the premise and they went over probably to where the garden was, the Mount of Olives. And they asked him that question, these questions there. And, and, the, and the questions were kind of twofold. But in the minds of the disciples, it was kind of one that is, you know, tell us when are these things going to happen and what's the sign of your return? And so in the minds uh, of the disciples, they kind of conflated the destruction of the temple 
with the consummation of the kingdom. And what Jesus here is doing and why this sermon is entitled and probably next week's as well, um, Judgment Near and Far, is because there's what Jesus is going to do is he's going to bifurcate the issue. He's going to say, look, I'm going to talk about two different things in one single prophecy. Now, what you have to understand is what Jesus is employing here is a technique that the Old Testament prophets would employ as well. I think one of the reasons people don't understand or they get confused by Luke chapter 21 and Matthew 24 is because they don't read enough of the prophets in the Old Testament. I think if you would read the prophets a lot in the Old Testament and get a feel for the way they often prophesy, you'd get a feel for the way Jesus is prophesying. He's following that same tradition of the prophets here. And, and we see this, we know this, don't we, every Advent season when, when we read passages, for example, in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, what do we, we read about? We, we read about Isaiah prophesying about something near that's happening. And then suddenly the prophet telescopes way out into the future, into 700 years in the future about Jesus. And what you have to understand is Jesus is doing something very similar. He's talking about things that are near, that are about to happen within the single generation. But he's also going to speak at the same time about things that are far away. And what confuses it is that sometimes people uh, don't know when to pivot. And, and, and that's what makes it difficult um, here. Your dispensational friends, uh, those who maybe are in community churches or Bible churches, maybe, maybe they have a pastor from Dallas Seminary, what are they going to do? They're going to tend to emphasize that, that much of this is, is the second coming. And, you know, some people will even read you know, Matt, all of Matthew 24 is the second coming. You have others, um, maybe even some of your hyper preterists who want to view this as all happening uh, within that generation. They, they, they hammer home, you know, these things, you know, will take place, you know, before this generation is gone. Um, and I want to suggest to you that Jesus is employing a, a common prophetic uh way of speaking of things that are near and then projecting out to things that are future and then speaking again of things that are near and projecting out in the future. Now, we're going to focus uh, primarily today on the things that are near uh, in this prophecy. And I want us to start with verse five and six and, and want to talk about the, the shocking prophecy itself that we find in verse six. And then I want to discuss in the second point um, more of Jesus's explanation of this to his disciple. And I want to make applications for us because I want this to have some relevance uh, for us today. Obviously, the events of which Jesus spoke of that he was referring to with that pertaining to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple have already uh, have already happened. You know, uh, boys and girls, maybe you. You've watched the news. Maybe you've seen on CNN or Fox News or, or maybe you've seen in the newspaper um, people uh, at the Wailing Wall. And, and what is that Wailing Wall? Well, that's that's kind of what's left, you know, of the old Jerusalem there. And 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 that. Um, you have to understand that um, that that has already happened, the thing that. The things that we are reading about here, the prophecy, 
They were still in the future for the original audience. But now some of those things for us are in the past. So that adds another layer of complication as we go through this. And but I want us to still see, though, that even though some of the things of which Jesus is speaking are in the past, they're still relevant. And, and, and I have applications for those things. So let's start, number one, with the, the prophecy itself, verse five and six. And then I want to begin to talk about the answer that Jesus has, secondly, with regard to the destruction of the temple. Now, look again at verse five with me here for the context. And while some were talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, that's free will offerings. He said, verse six, as for these things. Now, what are these things? Are the things about the temple? As for these things which you are looking at, the beautiful buildings, the days will come in which there will not be left one stone upon another, which will not be torn down. Now, this was a shocking prophecy by the Lord Jesus Christ. He prophesied that the temple, the very seat of all piety for the Jews, of all worship, the place where the the uh, of the sacrifice and the atonement for the people of God takes place. That, that God would destroy this temple came as a, a shock. Now, you have to understand that what Jesus is prophesying, though, was not the very first time that the temple had been destroyed. I want to give you just a little bit of background about the temple and, and then why this prophecy was so disturbing to the original audience. And why it was helpful for the uh, original church too. remember, you have to consider that there was an audience to whom Luke was writing, you know, Theophilus. Um, and and that, that there was a purpose. Luke was recording these things. And, and I don't think it was simply just to confirm that Jesus was the prophet that we were looking for. But the temple, let's talk about the temple. What was the temple all about? And, and why? Why was this prophecy so Shocking. Well, the, the, the original temple uh, was constructed in the days of Solomon, as you know. Now, this is what they call the second temple. This is known sometimes um, among um, theologians and scholars as second temple Judaism. Sometimes you may hear that expression, second temple Judaism. That is because the temple in which Jesus and the disciples are in are, is actually the second temple that has been constructed. The first temple being constructed by Solomon about a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, it was David who wanted to build the temple. But you'll remember that David was a man of war, bloodshed. And God did not think it a good idea that a man uh, known for war and violence and conquest should be uh, constructing this temple uh, where uh, reconciliation uh, it takes place. Atonement takes place. And it would be better than a man of peace. A king who reigns in an era of peace uh, would be the one to construct a temple. So he told David, David, you can you can get the materials, the raw materials. You can set it all up. You can get the, the plans all drawn, etc., etc. But Solomon is the one who's going to build the temple. And so 
we see in first Kings five through seven and also um, in second Chronicles uh, chapter two through seven, the construction of the temple. Solomon begins the construction of the temple. Hiram, you'll remember, is sending a lot of raw materials uh, down that is needed for uh, the construction of, of this temple. But later in second Kings, chapter twenty five and second Chronicles, chapter thirty six, uh, we find uh, the destruction of that temple in second Kings, chapter twenty five. Let me just read here. It says now in the ninth year, this is second Kings twenty five in the ninth year of his reign on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. This is around five hundred eighty six B.C. So five hundred eighty six B.C., about Five, you know, that many years after Solomon and uh, and about halfway between Solomon and the time of Christ, uh, Babylon invades Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem camped against it and built a siege wall all around it. And then it goes on uh, about it. And I'll jump down to verse eight. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord. The king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, even the great house, he burned with fire. It broke down the walls, it says here in the next verse, all around Jerusalem. And we are told why the Lord did that. And it was because of Israel's apostasy in that even as the Lord had promised um, that if the people were obedient, he would bless them. But if they broke covenant with God, went after other gods and pursued a manner of sin, he would bring judgment upon them, even the destruction of Jerusalem and the holy temple. And so we can read, for example, in uh, Jeremiah chapter 52. Uh, as well in the prophets, Jeremiah, of course, was a prophet who lived prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, but during the destruction of it and a little bit afterward as well. In Jeremiah chapter 52 and verse 17, the bronze pillars which belong to the house of the Lord, the stands, the bronze sea, which were in the house of the Lord. These are the various parts of the temple. They were broken into pieces and they were carried into Babylon, we are told. They took away the pots, the shovels, the snuffers, the basins, the pans, the bronze vessels, which were used in the temple service. The captain of the guard took away the bowls, the fire pans, the basins, the pots, the lampstands, the pans, the drink offering bowls. Interestingly, all of those utensils, they're brought back in the days of Cyrus. They're kept in Babylon, almost like for safekeeping. And then when Ezra and Nehemiah come about, they bring all of that back. So the temple is destroyed. You can read about it in Lamentations as well. Jeremiah wrote about the destruction of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. And then you then what happens? Then you have the books Ezra and Nehemiah and the temple and Jerusalem are beginning to be reconstructed. The foundations are laid. Haggai chapter one. Haggai, the prophet, is prophesying. You know, why do you guys live in your own house while the temple is desolate? You know, urging the people get the. Get going, build the temple. Uh, Zechariah chapter four, verse nine. Zerubbabel is told to finish the house. 
And then later in Zechariah chapter six, uh, Zechariah tells us that the temple ultimately will be rebuilt. And that the Christ in Zechariah nine, the Christ will come to Jerusalem. Now, what's my point in all of this? Well, here's what I want to say. Jesus tells us that all of this talk about the temple, its construction, its ruin, its reconstruction, the significance of all of this focus on the temple is this. It was always, always pointing the people of God to Jesus. Because when you get to John chapter 2, Jesus tells the Jews that it is his resurrected body that will be the fulfillment and the replacement of the temple built with human hands. You see, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the people of God were under a ceremonial administration of the law. When it came to worship, they worshiped boys and girls by way of I'm going to give you this theological term by way of typology. They that what does that mean, Pastor? It means this. They worshiped through images. They worshiped through signs. So that the lamb that was offered was a type of Christ, the blood that was sprinkled about the altar and was put on the four horns of the altar, and the body that was consumed in the fire on the altar was a picture of Jesus suffering on the cross and experiencing the wrath of God, His Father, while our sins were laid upon the head of Jesus Christ. The temple where the people of God drew near was a type of Christ. How do we draw near to God and not be consumed by God when, when we're sinners? It is through Jesus. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. That's not a magical formula. It's not like saying hocus pocus and the magician gets his little trick done. The name of Jesus is so important that we pray in his name is because he's the way, the access to God. It is through his, his merit, his life, his death, his resurrection, his obedience, his active obedience, his passive obedience. This is what makes it acceptable. Why does fire not fall upon this worship service right now? We've invoked the name of a holy God and we're all still sinners. Why doesn't God just consume us? Why, 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 why does God not just be rid of us like, like those who brought the, the fire to the, the altar of incense in the days of, of Moses and Aaron? And be consumed. Nadab and Abihu and, and the sons of Korah who brought the fire that was unsolicited. Why, why does God not do that with us? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the one by whom we approach the Father and the Father does not consume us. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And the blood of goats and bulls and calves could not atone for the sins of Israel. The, that blood was accepted by the Father because it typologically pointed to the blood of Christ that was still yet to be shed. Now Christ has shed his blood and we have this access to God. 
And, and God receives us as little children coming to a father, even though we're still not perfected yet. We're still not glorified yet. There's a lot of mess still to be cleaned up in each of our lives. But God accepts us. And so Jesus here is explaining to his people that the significance of the temple is himself. Jesus is Emmanuel, God among us, God incarnate. The, the significance of the temple was that's where the presence of God was. That's where the name of God was. That's where the atonement was. That's where the word of God went out. Jesus is the word who went out. Jesus is God among us. This is why at the death of Jesus, the, the miracle takes place of the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple is split into two. Because Jesus's finished work now allows us access to the throne of mercy. Better blood has been now finally poured out and we don't need to bring the blood of an animal to the throne of the, the mercy seat. Jesus has shed his blood for us. Now, I say all that getting back to our text here. Because look at verse 6. Jesus says, as for these things which you are looking at. Essentially, you know, Jesus could have said these things that you're looking at are not the most significant things. What you're looking at is a shadow. The building and all its ornamentation is the shadow. And the substance of that shadow is Christ. The disciples are looking at the building and saying how marvelous, how wonderful, how beautiful. And that's what they should have been saying about Christ. How marvelous, how wonderful, how beautiful is he. God among us. God in the sun. Sacrifice for us. Having satisfied the, the justice of God, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Now we who come in Jesus' name approach him as little children. Jesus here is prophesying that not one stone be left on another, that the temple would be destroyed. That is what essentially what is happening here is Jesus is explaining a very fundamental, significant, redemptive shift that is taking place. That with the finished work of Jesus Christ, now the people of God are to focus on Jesus and not on the temple. The temple has served its purpose. And the temple will be done away with that our eyes should never be diverted Away from Christ. So Jesus prophesies something that may at first have seemed confusing, discouraging, even to the disciples as they were anticipating a renewal of the kingdom in Christ. Remember, what are the disciples often anticipating? They're not anticipating the, the, the humiliation of the Lord. They're, they're anticipating the glory of the Lord all at once. They're anticipating all the consummated glory all at once. And what Jesus is saying is that's not the way this is going to play out. Number one, the son is going to suffer. Number two, a judgment is going to fall upon the people of God who have rejected the son. 
And this typological shadowy temple, which was always pointing ahead to me, now that I have finished my work, it'll be done away with. And those who worship, even as Jesus said in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, those who worship the Father, the time is, and or the time will come and now is when they will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It won't matter where you are. There will, the debate won't even need to take place whether the Samaritans are right or the Jews are right. And even though the Jews were right for a season that you should worship at the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is saying the day is coming when it won't matter. You you do not have to be in the vicinity of the temple to worship God. Because Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that temple. And he who believes in me. Worships the father in spirit and in truth. God is going to bring a judgment on his own covenant people again because of their apostasy from God. That even as God brought a destruction on the people back in 586 because they had moved away from God and they had gone after other gods, the rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember, is is the evidence That they have rejected the father again. They have gone after another God. We have no king but Caesar, they said. But Jesus said that if we would believe on the son, we have the father. This is the will of the father that you believe on him whom he has sent. And that when the son is rejected, we reject not only the son, but we reject the father. And because... His own people, he came among them, but they did not receive him. Jesus prophesies a terrible judgment will come upon them for that rejection. Now, I think we should say just by note that the Apostle Paul tells us in the book of Romans, don't be proud. Remember, branches were sawn off. People who were a part of that natural tree, that covenantal tree, branches were sawn off so that what you could be grafted in. And that the tree bears you up, not the other way around. And if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare professing Christians who reject him. Let me say that again. God will not spare Presbyterians who reject him. Who do not bear fruit for him. He will, if he sawed off natural branches, he will also bring judgment and saw off engrafted branches. And therefore, the New Testament says that we should fear the Lord. It's not a slavish fear, but it is a filial fear. It is a that we worship a God with awe and reverence for Hebrews tells us he is a consuming fire. The Lord's table is serious business set before us here. That you should not be playing with adultery and coming to the Lord's table. You should not be stealing from your company and coming to the Lord's table. You should not be cheating your neighbor. You, you should not be going after other gods and and, and worldliness and coming to the Lord's table. This table is a table of grace, but is a table of judgment as well. 
God does bring judgments in history. Augustine has written that uh, God does bring judgments in history. Lest we think that all judgment is reserved for the future, for the final judgment. And Jesus is reminding his disciples that God is going to bring a judgment in history, in their days, in this generation, meaning their generation. Now, look at verse 7, and i got to move here real quickly and, and take some applications because we have the Lord's Supper. So here, secondly, they question him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So the disciples have some follow up questions from that shocking prophecy back at the temple. When and what's the sign of this? When are these things going to happen and what will be the sign of it? Now, if you read the version in Matthew 24, which is interesting, you know, when will these things take place and what will be the sign of your coming? And there you can see, I think, in Matthew's version, maybe a little bit more clearly even that, they, that the disciples actually had two questions they were conflating, I think, in their own mind. But Jesus is going to explain these are two separate and distinct events. Now, what does Jesus say in answer to these questions? Number one, he says what? He says, don't fall for false prophets and messiahs who come in his name. Look at verse seven. What will the sign when these things take place? He said to them, see to it that you are not misled. That is, keep your theology straight. In the midst of troubling days, be discerning because he said there will be many people, many errant theologies are going to crop up in those historic and distressing times. And there are going to be some even among them who are going to claim to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. And he says to them, don't go after them. So the first thing. And I want to say, by way of application, is you need to study theology, good theology, because you need to be discerning. You know, difficult days and stress has a way of exposing one's theology. One's basic commitments tend to come out under stress. Crises have a way of exposing where we are with the Lord. And therefore, when the days are calm and Pleasant and good, those are times to be storing away for days of adversity. Those of you who are old enough, you'll remember that we saw a lot of this, didn't we, around the time of 9-11. I never heard so much terrible theology on the news and on television and in interviews as I did around 9-11. Because it was a time of crisis and there were answers wanted by the public Rare time that the news takes any interest in theology at all. The church is hardly ever reported on unless it has to do with politics or scandal. Those are the only two times the news generally takes an interest in theology. But when this terrible thing happened, people wanted to know why. What, what, what is going on? What's behind it? And the terrible answers we often heard. God wasn't involved in the tragedy, but he's now with us, you know, comforting us. Things like that. You had events that where every god represented on the earth was allowed to participate in a worship service. Um, National Cathedral or Oprah's event in the Yankee Stadium. Uh, terrible things. Stress, times of stress has a way of exposing 
where we are with the Lord. And so the first thing Jesus says here is, is what? Get your theology right. Know who Christ is. Know where you stand. Because in, in chaotic times, there's going to be a lot of false teaching coming forward. And you need to be prepared not to go after that false theology. Number two, Jesus says what? Don't panic. Don't panic. Look at verse nine. Not only get your theology straight in verse eight, but verse nine, don't panic. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. Here's an application. We are hearing of wars, aren't we? And rumors of wars right now. And, and this is where this is where your Calvinism, your belief in the sovereignty of God needs to really kick in. This is this. God is as much in control of of of, of days of war as he is of days of peace. And Jesus says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified. Don't panic. Jesus is saying there's going to be a lot going on in, in the news. You're going to hear of wars. You're going to hear of natural disasters. There's going to be disease going around, plagues, he says. There are going to be uh, communities that are starving. There's going to be some famine going on in various parts. And, and, and I believe that when Jesus is saying this, he's saying this to this to that generation still. We haven't gotten to the second coming yet. I'm going to do that, Lord willing, in, in the coming weeks here. We're still talking about what Jesus is saying to his disciples. How do you prepare for this judgment of destruction against Jerusalem? Get your theology straight. Don't panic. Trust in the Lord. These things are going to occur uh, and then finally, and we'll stop here, the third application, continue in faithfulness, even in the midst of persecution. One of the things that Jesus makes clear is that the church is going to be persecuted. After Jesus is raised from the dead and he ascends to the Father, the Spirit is given, and there is rapid growth in the church through the preaching of the apostles, there is going to be some backlash and you see it in Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, 8, the persecution, the church begins to scatter and Saul begins to breathe out his threats, etc. And so there will be times of persecution as well. And we are called to be faithful. Look at verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you. That you there is the disciples. Now that, of course... I, you know, by way of application, could apply to us someday. And so we need to listen to what Christ is telling his own disciples that we could be uh, prepared. I was listening to some interviews just this week. There are two uh, Iranian women who live in Atlanta now, uh, but they came to Christ as teenagers, about 17 years old, uh, Maria and uh, Mazara are their names, and they came to Christ and began to distribute Bibles all over Tehran. In fact, the government of Tehran thought that there was a huge group of them doing it. They didn't know it was two teenage girls with just backpacks and Bibles sneaking around, putting them in people's mailboxes. Well, anyway, they finally got caught, arrested, and uh, spent about 290-some days in prison. For it. And one of the things they, they, they said was a helpful verse for them 
was this section right here where Jesus tells his disciples, don't prepare beforehand to defend yourselves. The spirit will give you, you know, what you need to say. And they they really trusted the Lord. They said it was a very scary time for them. They didn't know what awaited them. They had no idea they were going to get out. Uh, They thought they were going to get executed, actually. Um, But that the Lord did uh, provide for them uh, the encouragement that they needed to give the answers. Kind of like we heard from Pastor Zeki back in October. Um, They got mad the the, when they were in the notorious Evin prison, E-V-I-N prison in Tehran, they um, the authorities then got mad at them because they were then you know sharing the gospel in the prison. And they said, well, that's your fault. You put us here. You know, you, you, you could let us go and we wouldn't do this in the prison. And uh, but, you know, that kind of boldness, they said, you know, really was a gift from the Lord uh, during those times of stress. And, and so Jesus is saying here, and we'll talk more about persecution next week. Uh, but that these things were going to come upon them, too, that they were going to be handed over for the sake of Christ. And they needed to be prepared for that as well. We're going to stop there for now. We'll talk more about the prophecy of Jesus of things near and far uh, next week. Let's pray together and come to the Lord's table.